0: First Corinthians chapter 15, 20 to 28. First sermon i have entitled "Christ the Victor." and here's what it says. "But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all are made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. (coughs) For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things under subjection to his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he's accepted who put all things into subjection to him. When all things have been subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. April 30th, 1945, Adolf Hitler commits suicide in his underground bunker in Berlin. Seven days later, the German forces surrender to the Americans in the West, and two days after that, to the Russians in the East. The war in Europe was finally over. Germany lay in ruins. The army had been defeated, the cities reduced to rubble, and the horrors of the Nazi final solution were coming into full view of the world. The dead had to be buried, but the living had to go on. For the first four years, Germany was ruled directly by the Russians in the east and the Americans and British and the French in what became West Germany. But in 1949, Germany held its first post-war national elections. Two candidates stepped forward for the position, Kurt Schumacher, a social democrat, and Konrad Adenauer for the Christian our Social Democrat, and for the Christian Democrats. Now, Schumacher wanted a united socialist country uh, that was neutral. Adenauer wanted West Germany to align with the Western nations and join NATO. He believed that the great struggle to come would be between communism, the forces of communism, and those of Christianity. Now, being a leader of a nation is never an easy task, but for Adenauer, there were a special uh, number of great challenges. Hundreds of thousands of people had to be repatriated, Cities had to be rebuilt, and there was the whole process of what was called denazification. That along with the fact that he was dealing with a threat, continued threat from the Russians, that would have been enough to wear out a younger man, but he was 73 years old when he took office, and he retired only when he was 87 years of age. Well, several months before he left office, uh, the evangelist Billy Graham uh, visited him. And uh, listen to the words of Graham from one of his books as he recounts the exchange on that day. He says this, I was invited to have coffee one morning with uh, Konrad Adenauer before he retired as Chancellor of Germany. When I walked in, I expected to find a tall, stiff man, formal, who might be embarrassed if I brought up the subject of religion. But after greeting the Chancellor, suddenly he turned to me and said, Mr. Graham, what's the most important thing in the world? Before I could answer, he answered his own question. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is alive, then there's hope for the world. If Jesus Christ is in the grave, I don't see the slightest glimmer of hope on the horizon. Graham continued. Then he amazed me by saying that he believed that the resurrection was the best attested fact in history. And then he said, When I leave office, I intend to spend the rest of my life gathering scientific proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Adenauer was right. If Christ did not come out of the tomb on that first Easter morning, then the resurrection is a hoax and Christianity is false. If that's the case... There is no hope for the world, and there is no hope for you beyond the grave. But if Christ is risen, if he is risen indeed, then that makes all the difference. Now in this chapter, Paul has been addressing the Corinthian church who are denying the bodily resurrection of Christians at the end of the age. And in verses 1 to 19, he forces them to think through the implications of this denial by pointing out that if the dead aren't raised, then Christ himself hasn't been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died, have perished. If we have hope in Christ only in this life, we of all men are to be most pitied. But in the next section, the one we're looking at today, Paul insists that Christ has indeed been raised and that his resurrection guarantees ours and that abolishment of death will be the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Well, to give you hope and to fill your mind with some wonder on the thoughts of what Christ has done, we want to consider this passage this morning, so let's pray and get into the text. Father, God, i do pray for grace and mercy. You know, they always say that on Easter morning, even if you're not a good preacher, you've got a great message. And I pray that you'll show that to be true again this morning. So bless us now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look at this text, I think there's four things related to the resurrection. First of all, we see the fact of the resurrection. That's verses 20 to 22. The fact of the resurrection. Secondly, we see the order of the resurrection. That's 23 to 24. Third, we find the reason for Christ's reign. That's 25 to 27. And finally, the result. Of Christ's reign, and that is verse 28. So, the fact of the resurrection. Now, (laughs) we're living in a time where people put their subjective feelings above objective facts. I mean, I think it's Ben Shapiro who always tells his audience that facts don't care about your feeling. Now, we should care about how people feel about the resurrection of Christ, but Paul first wanted to establish the fact of the resurrection, and that's why he started this chapter by speaking about the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Christ. In verses 1 to 11, he says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, meaning the good news, that I preach to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Whether then it's I or they, so we preached, and that's what you believed. Now, Back in 1923, during what was called the modernist fundamentalist controversy, J. Gresham Machen wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. Now the reason he put the word and in between Christianity and liberalism was because he was arguing that liberal, the liberal faith that was pre- uh, preached in most of the mainline churches was not in fact the Christian religion but a denial of the religion and another religion altogether. You know, it's the case that many liberal pastors don't believe that Jesus really came out of that tomb. They would say something like this. they say, yeah, you, you see that the, the message of Jesus so inspired the apostles that they were renewed in their faith and Jesus, in a sense, rose in their hearts. That's blarney, as the Irish would say. Or boulder Dash as the Brits would say. Do you know where that word balderdash comes from? It goes back to the 1590s. It originally referred to a jumble of mixed uh, liquids, like mixing your beer with milk. You know, it just wouldn't go. Well, that's what the liberals do when they mix the modern theories that they have with a biblical truth. They adulterate the pure word of God and they do what Peter said they do. They twist the scripture to their own destruction. For Paul... The resurrection was a historical fact and a verity of the Christian faith and that's why he starts by asserting, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Now what does Paul mean by calling Jesus the firstfruits? Well, that goes back to a provision in the Old Testament law given by Moses. At the beginning of the harvest, farmers were supposed to take a portion, the firstfruits of the crop, and bring it to a priest at the temple. And there they would wave it before the Lord as an offering. Now, we have something kind of like that in our church. Joel Johnson gives me firstfruits every spring. He comes to me with some asparagus, and when he brings me a bunch, he usually says, I got a lot more where that's coming from. Well, the first fruits. Were an offering given to God, which was a small sample of what was yet to follow in the harvest. And Jesus' resurrection was that small initial sample offered up to God, pointing to a final resurrection that would come when the saints are raised to life. Do you remember when Jesus died? It says the curtain in the temple was split. But then you read these strange words. It says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice again and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rock split. Listen to this though. The ro- uh, tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, meaning died, were raised. And coming out of to- the tombs, after the- his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. <laughs> what? What do you mean from that verse? I mean, can you imagine? You saw your cousin lying, his body lying in a, in a casket in January, and in April, you see him walking around in the market? Now, was this a, a, like a resuscitation, kind of like Lazarus when he was raised, but then later died again? It could be. Or was this an actual resurrection so that they are resurrected and given bodies like Christ, which I think is more likely. Wow. Do you know what a concept car is? You ever heard of that? That's, that's the ones that they, usually a single car, and they'll show it at a auto show, and it's got some wild or radical design Uh, These are cars uh, designed to to generate buzz for the company, but they seldom go into production. Usually they go off to be set in a museum somewhere. Uh, You know, one that did find extra life, though, was the Ford Futura's Company's um, 1955, Lincoln Futura. Lincoln Futura. Eleven years later, it showed up in the Batman series. It was the Batmobile. Well, Jesus' resurrection was not a concept resurrection, an amazing one and done. Rather, it was a prototype resurrection, the first of millions to follow. And Paul's point here is that that not only was Christ raised, in fact, but that resurrection is the guarantee of the resurrection for believers as well. Look what he says in verse 21. For since by one man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Do you know how many people die each year in the world? 65 million. That's 178,000 people each day, 700 and, or 7,425 each hour, 120 each minute. But why do people die? Why does anyone die? According to Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all, because all sinned. In the early years of America's history, school children were taught to read using what was called the McGuffey Readers. In learning the alphabet, it started with this, A, A, in Adam's fall, we send all. Adam was like a, a mountain climber who, when he fell, since he was tied to others, dragged all of hu- humanity down with him. All who are in Adam die, but all who are in Christ will be made alive. In Noah's day, everybody in the world died except for those who entered into the ark. Now there's not an exact parallel here for we're all born in Adam and even Christians die. But now that we've entered by faith into Christ like those who entered the ark, we will be made alive. And what a difference that makes as you're facing death. One ancient Greek gravestone had these gloomy words on it. I was not. I was. I am not. I care not. But a Christian could put on their tombstone, I was chosen by God. I was created for God. I'm redeemed in Christ. And I'll be resurrected by Christ. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. John five, twenty-eight to 29 That brings us to our second point, though, the order of the resurrection. Now, early in this letter, in Paul's letter here, there were Christians in the church in Corinth that were practicing their spiritual gifts, but the whole thing was all messed up. And and Paul told them that they needed to practice their gifts in an orderly way, in turn, one at a time. He said, because God is a God of order. By the way, if you go to a church service and the whole thing is chaos and pandemonium, that is not from the Lord. Well, just like there's pattern and order in the way God created the world and all that it contains, there's an order in the way the resurrection to life is going to occur. Look at what Paul says in verse 23. He says, But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruit, and then those who are Christ that is coming. First, Christ was resurrected, and then when Jesus returns, the full harvest of resurrection will come in as the Old Testament saints and those who were born after the cross, who died in Christ, will be raised to the dead. Do you remember when Daniel was talking to the angel? The angel said to him, at the very end of the book, he said, as for you, go your way until the end, meaning die. You will rest, and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance, Daniel 12, 13. In Revelation 20, after Christ defeats the Antichrist, and Satan has been locked away in the abyss and imprisoned there for a thousand years, we read this, then I saw thrones and they who sat upon them. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus Christ, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast, meaning the Antichrist, and his image, and had not received the mark of the forehead, a mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were complete. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who, Who take part in the first resurrection. Over them, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, commentators who hold what's called an amillennial view of end times argue that that's that's not talking about some future reign of Christ. That's just talking about what's going on in the world with Christians today. And when it says it talks about coming to life, that's not a physical resurrection. That's when a person's born again and comes into spiritual life. But notice that among those who come to life, are those who've been beheaded by the Antichrist. They experienced a physical death. Now they're promised a physical life. And as for the idea that the saints rule someday, or rule in heaven in some ethereal way, Revelation five ten tells us this. It says, You have made them to be a kingdom of priests unto our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It doesn't say in heaven. It says in verse 24, they, Then comes the end when he, meaning Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Christ will return, defeat his enemies, rule over the whole world, after which he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. And we're going to come back and expand on that in just a little bit. By the way, do you remember? Do you remember that uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? He had this dream and he wanted his counselors to tell him what his dream meant. And they said, Well, tell us what the dream was, and we'll tell you what it meant. He said, No, 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 no. I've been paying you guys for a long time. How would I know what you're telling me there? Here's what I'm going to do. You tell me what I dreamt and then tell me the interpretation because then I'll know you're giving the correct one. And they're like, no one can ever, do, who would do that? And they get round up all the people, they're going to kill them. Dan's like, oh, why are they killing us? <laughs> because king has a dream no one can interpret. He says, well, tell them I'll interpret the dream. Get this, it says, then he and his friends got together and they prayed and begged the God of heavens to interpret, tell him the dream. So he said, yeah, I'll, I'll tell him the dream and I'll tell him the interpretation. He says, can you tell me the dream? yeah. He said, this is what you dreamt. You dreamt that it was a big statue and it had a head of gold and it had a chest of silver. It had a belly of bronze and it had legs of iron and then it had feet made of iron and clay. And then you saw in your dream there was a rock cut out from a, a mountain without hands and it came and it smashed the colossus on the, on the feet and the whole thing shattered and it came down. And then he told him, God's revealed to you what's going to happen. And he explained it. He said, you're that head of gold, but after you there's going to come another empire, the silver, and then another, and then another, and then another. And we learn from elsewhere in the scripture that the first one refers to Babylon, the second one to Persia, the third one to Greece, and the fourth one to the Roman Empire. But then he says this later on. He said, In those days, the uh, uh, days of those kings, in the ten toes, that final empire, it said the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will not be destroyed and a kingdom which will not be left for another and will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but itself will endure forever. Now notice that the kingdom of God is not set up until these other kingdoms are destroyed, which has not happened yet. That matches with what Daniel was told by the angel in chapter 7. Now Nebuchadnezzar saw, this is a beautiful statue, but Daniel had a vision about the same thing. But in his dream, they appeared as beasts that tear down and destroy. After seeing the last beast, Daniel asked for an interpretation of what that last beast was, and this is what the angel said. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he'll be different than the previous ones and subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in the times and the laws, and they will be given into his hands for a time, time and half a half times, three and a half years This beast, this antichrist is going to torment God's people. But the court will sit in judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty and dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole earth will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. That's all yet future. That brings us to a third point though, the reason for Christ's reign. I mean, why why is it I'm talking about the reign of Christ in some future kingdom on Easter morning? I mean, I thought Easter was just about the resurrection. It is, but notice it's connected with Christ's reign and the future resurrection. Notice we saw in verse, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 20 that God's people are resurrected to reign. And Paul certainly connects it here, doesn't he? He says this in verse 25. For he, meaning Christ, must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Now the first question we have to answer is this, though. Is this reign of Christ spoken of here is that referring to something in the present or something yet in the future? Well, certainly Christ is in heaven right now sitting at the right hand of God. And as the sovereign son of God, he has ruled from eternity past over the entire cosmos. But that's not the kind of reign that Paul and John and Daniel are talking about in their prophecies. They're speaking about the day when Christ sits on his throne, the throne of David in Jerusalem and rules over the entire earth. And that's what Zechariah prophesied when he said this. In in that day's living water will flow from Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. It'll be the same in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over the earth in that day and the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. I mean, isn't that what was promised by the father to the son in Psalm chapter 2? It asks this question, why are the nations in an uproar? Boy, they're in an uproar today, aren't they? And why do the people devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us tear off their fetters, cast away the cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I will. I I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. This is the Father talking to the Son, Jesus. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Jesus is going to subdue his enemies. And Paul tells us here that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But when does he do that? This is where it gets kind of interesting to me. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Revelation chapter 21, starting with verse 1. I'm going to show you a quandary in the scripture that a lot of commentators aren't able to answer. 21, starting with verse 1. Follow along as I read. 21, starting with verse 1, it says this, Then I saw, this is John in his vision, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and he shall be, they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things that passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I've made all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Now, isn't that a comforting Thought No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, no more heartache, and no more death. But take your Bibles and turn now to Isaiah chapter 65, starting with verse 17. I want you to see something. that's fascinating. Isaiah is about in the middle of the Bible. Isaiah 65, starting with verse 17. I hear lots of pages rustling. That's good. Except for now, with everyone with their phones, instead of hearing pages rustling, you see the glow off their face. <laughs> I want you to follow along as I read, though, starting in uh, verse 17 here. It says, For behold, this is God speaking, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. So he's talking about the same thing that John is, right? The new heavens the new earth. But I want you to follow along here. It says, And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. By the way, I have people ask me all the time, Doug, when we get to heaven, will we remember what our life was like before? And some people say, well, no, we'll forget all of it because that way we won't have no suffering or pain to think about. That's nonsense. Like, we're going to forget. Jesus kept the nail prints. You remember that? They're there forever because we're never going to forget what he did for us. What it means by these the former things won't come to mind it means all the garbage in the past those are going to be long past us right it says be glad and rejoice forever in what I create for behold I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping or the sound of crying no longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days infant mortality rates going to be 0 there's never going to be a parent who's going to have to, look, from that point on, is going to have to look down at a casket of their child. It says, No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and one who does not reach the age of 100, they'll think, he's cursed. How could that guy have died at, at 93 years old? He must have done something that God would take his life at that early. Listen to what It says, It says, <clears throat> They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat of them. They won't build houses and have another inhabit them. They will not plant and have another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. In Israel, there's trees that have been there for 2,000 years. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hand. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For They are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants will be with them. Oh man. But I want you to see something that's really fascinating. Remember when John, in Revelation, said there's no death. But here, he says the youth will die at the age of 100. But notice there's still death. So is there a contradiction here? They're both talking about the new heavens and the new earth. One of them says there will be death. The other one says there won't be death. Now some of the commentators, they'll argue that when Isaiah speaks of the youth dying at the age of 100, that's just another way of speaking of eternal life. What? Die, death, equals life? That would make it an oxymoron. Death is not another way of referring to eternal life. Death and life are not synonymous. They're antonyms. They're opposites. So how do we reconcile what appears to be a contradiction? I think it's rather simple. Both are speaking of Christ's millennial reign when he comes back and rules on this earth for a thousand years. But Isaiah is speaking of the condition during that thousand years, and John is speaking about the result at the end of a thousand years. Why? Because death, is not abolished completely until the end of Christ's reign. That's what Paul means when he says, for he must reign until he's placed all his enemies under his feet. Now listen to how Isaiah speaks of this future day, describing it as if it were a banquet we could eat at. By the way, I I like the idea that it really is a banquet. (laughs) Here's what it says. The Lord of hosts has prepared a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. A banquet, banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, He will swallow up the covering over all the people, even the veil which stretches over all nations. What is it? He will swallow up death for all times. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is the God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Death has swallowed up millions, billions, day after day, month after month, year after year, but when it swallowed Jesus, it gagged. And just as God ordered the great fish to vomit up Jonah, so he ordered death to give up his son. Death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose the victor from a dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us our victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to our last point, the result of his reign. This is in 27 to 28. Here's what it says. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put into subjection, it's evident that he accepted the one who put into subjection. In other words, Jesus is not under this, Jesus is over it. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, meaning the Father, that God might be all in all. Do you remember when God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden? We read this. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Subdue the earth, rule over it, and fill it with those who bear the image of God to the glory of God. As it says in Hebrews chapter 2, for he, meaning God, did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying this, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. He's talking about humanity, a little bit lower than the angels for a little while. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you've appointed him over the works of your hand. You have put all things under subjection to his feet. For in subjection, subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that's not subjected to him. But here's the thing, we don't see that now, and that's what he says, but now we don't see all things subjected to him. Everything is not, it's, it's not that we rule over the earth, the earth rules over us, because you can farm all your life, and when you're done, they're going to put you in the back 40 and bury you. Because the ground has been cursed. Our bodies have been cursed. And everything is not in subjection to us now. The first man failed to achieve his God-appointed destiny. By his sin, the dominion for the earth was shifted over to Satan. But the Son of God appeared for this reason, that he might destroy the work of the devil. Jesus, as the Son of God, the Son of Man, fulfills the mandate of subduing the earth and filling it and ruling over it with those who bear the image of God. That's his appointed destiny. David, writing about the, uh, the Messiah, said this in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are like the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's talking to the Messiah. According to the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's because he was a priest who offered up the perfect sacrifice on the cross that Jesus is also qualified to be the king who rules forever. And he's going to take us along for the ride. And when is that ride over? It says in verse 28, When all things have been subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. The image here is of one that the Corinthians would be familiar with. At the time, you know, Rome fought wars and had to put down rebellions, and so occasionally you'd have a a Roman emperor who would send out a general to wage war against rebels to bring them back into subjection to Rome. After achieving the victory, the general would return to the city in glorious triumph. He would then approach Caesar, announce that his enemies had all been defeated and his rule reestablished, and that his servants are again submitted to and subjected to Caesar's authority. And then Caesar would say something like this, Hail, General Scipio Africanus! You have served your emperor well. And when Jesus' kingdom is turned over to the father, he's going to say to him, Well done, my son. You've served your father well. Because being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above all other names. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I only have one application for today. Marvel. Marvel at Christ the victor. He's won the victory, not only for himself, but for you if you just simply trust him as the payment for your sins. May God give you the grace to do so because he's a good Savior. Our Father and God, I thank you so much for this message. It never gets old to me because uh, I'm going to be facing my death sometime, just like everyone here. And at that moment, we're going to want to have hope. And we can have hope because Christ had victory over the grave. So bless us now keep our faith alive, and keep us trusting and looking forward to Jesus' return and his reign on this earth. So bless us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.